0: Alright, uh, I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to each and every one of you. My name is Ezra, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to those who are watching online today. Um, we are going to be starting a, an Advent series that I'll talk about in just a bit, but I'd like to pray first, and then we can uh, jump into the Word I can explain exactly what we'll be doing here uh, today and also in the coming uh, weeks leading up to Christmas so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy toward us. We thank you for your favor that you have bestowed upon us in this very strange and challenging times. We pray, dear Father, now as we still our hearts and look at your Word, as we begin our Advent series. We pray, dear Father, that you'd remind us the joy of Christmas. Would your word be a great comfort to us? We commend ourselves to you, Lord, as we look into your word in Jesus' name, amen. You will need a Bible, and if you have one, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, verse 18 to 21 is where we will be at today. Now, we'll be taking a break from the Gospel of John uh, that that we've been working through until the early part of January, and this gives us a chance to focus on the story of Christmas and of course the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world. Now the season of Advent has been described as a season of the waiting and of great expectation as we see this unfolding story of God's plan where he sends his son to meet needs that we could not meet on our own. And this needs that we cannot meet on our own, we are powerless to meet them. This needs include our salvation, our forgiveness, and our reconciliation uh, with the Lord. And therefore, for the next four weeks, starting today, we are going to be focusing our study on one key theme, one key theme, and that theme is Jesus being the savior we need, And so our hope then throughout these next four weeks is that you and I will be drawn into this wonder and this joyful amazement of the great love of God, the love that God has for us. We want to marvel at this love of God. And then secondly, our prayer is also that we all would see Jesus in all his glory at least a little bit more clearly. We want to see Christ in all his glory a little bit more clearly during this next four weeks. So that's where we are headed as we contemplate and celebrate this savior that we need as we walk our way closer to the Christmas season. So Matthew chapter one, verse 18 to 21 is the text that I'll be working through today and in particular I'll be focusing on verse 21 of Matthew chapter one. So I'll read the text and then we'll unpack it together. Matthew 1:18. now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considers these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There ends the reading of God's word. Now, like I said before, I'll be focusing specifically on verse 21 that basically says, she, Mary, will bear a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph, saying, Mary will bear a son, and you shall, na- you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I'll be looking at this particular uh, verse in two sections, the first, you know, when people say, yeah, Jesus came to save people from their sins, or so now people who become Christians, they say, I'm saved. And so the first question is, saved from what? Jesus came to save people from their sins in what way? So the first point there is, saved from what? From the wages of sin. And then the second question is, saved how? In what way will this salvation come? Yeah, the atonement of Jesus Christ will be the answer to that question. So the two points again, saved from what and saved how. But first, before we jump into these questions, you will notice that the angel shows up and the angel tells Joseph that Mary will bear a son and he goes on to say, you shall call him Jesus. You shall call him Jesus. So the angel tells Joseph what they will call Jesus. What, what they will name this child, Jesus. Now, in, in, in many parts of the world, uh, parents would choose to name their children uh, based on all sorts of uh, things. So here in Canada, would basically be looking through books uh, with, with all sorts of names, or Google names, and so famous boys' names, and famous or rare boys' names and rare girls' names. And so you're looking at various names, you and your spouse, trying to figure out, okay, so what are we going to name this child who will come? And maybe you already know the biology of this child. Maybe it's a boy or a girl, So, or maybe you don't know, it's gonna be a surprise. So you choose a boy's name and a girl's name just because. For some, they will name their children after Grandpa and Grandma, or your mom or your dad. Well, in Kenya, where I was born, there are various ways in which we name our children. Of course, like here, we'll probably pick a name, a famous name, or Bible name, but there are certain individuals who would choose to name their children based on what time of day they were born. So if you're born in the morning, or mid-afternoon, or evening, or night, You'll get a name, and so everybody will know when they call this name, this person was born at night. So for example, there are some Kenyans who are called Otieno. Otieno is basically someone who was born at night. If it's a boy, a girl, Atieno. So Otieno or Atieno. Otieno a boy, Atieno a girl. And everybody will know, yeah, you were born at night. Or there are people who are, who are named based on the day of the week when you're born, so if you're born on Monday, there's a specific name, or a Tuesday, Wednesday, on a weekend, there's a specific name. Or there are, sometimes people be named based on current affairs, so something big is happening. So for example, when Nelson Mandela, who was the first president of South Africa, once South Africa got the independence, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, a lot of children born around that time in Kenya were, were named Nelson Mandela. I have a cousin whose name is Mandela. Or when Barack Obama became the first African-American president of the United States, there were many children in Kenya who were named Barack or Obama or Michelle, if it's a girl, after the Obamas. Again, just to signify the occasion that has happened. Now, in, in, in Jewish tradition, Parents would name their children with the intention that these this, this names would have meaning. That's how the parents would name the children. The name would have a meaning. But if God himself would give a name, that name had, that specific individual had significant, uh, a special significance around them. So for example, you'll find Ishmael or Isaac or John the Baptist. These are individuals whose birth and their life had significant meaning and you can find all those meanings as you read their stories, Ishmael or Isaac or John the Baptist. But for Jesus, what does the name Jesus mean? The name Jesus means God is salvation. God is salvation. So what is the purpose? You will find that again in verse 21, our text for he will save his people from their sins. That's the mission, that's the purpose, that is exactly why Jesus was coming, to save his people from their sins. Hence, the angel telling Joseph, you will call him Jesus. He has a mission, the reason why he's coming, to save people from sin. So, our two points here, point number one. Saved from what? When Jesus is coming to save people from their sins, okay, so how, in what way? Save from what? Yeah, the wages of sins, which will include guilt and the effects of sin and the consequences of sin. So the guilt that sins brings, the effects of this sin, and the consequences. So let's talk about the guilt. The guilt of sin. Now, Little children, when kids are born, they're usually very, very pretty, and very cute, and very sweet. Now, you may say kids are not sweet. Now you can see this cute little baby here, and you might wonder, who might this be? Well, yours truly. I think I was a very cute baby. (laughs) Very adorable, I must say. Very adorable child I was when I was young. Now. Just let's pause on that picture for a moment. You see the one with the big head right there? That would be me, and these are my two brothers as well. And so we're lovely kids. Okay, now you can take the picture down. So we're lovely kids (laughs) growing up. But I remember just around the time when that last picture was taken, I was going to school, I was in elementary school, and so, I go to school and night's PE and so the kids are out. We are all in our PE outfits and I saw one of my uh, classmates with soccer cleats and were playing soccer for PE that day and I just had regular runners and I, and I saw this kid running with these cleats and I was like, I want me some of those. I want, I want cleats as well. So he's playing and this kid is showboating and he's showing and every other kid wants those cleats as well, so am I. And I'm being very envious and jealous of this other kid. And so I go home and I tell my mom, mom, uh, the teacher said for PE, we need shoes that have those spiky things at the bottom. And my mom looks at me and says, what are you talking about? Yeah, mom, those shoes, you know, when people are playing football, we call soccer football in Africa. So when you're playing football, you know, they have these shoes with spiky things at the bottom. And so my mom is like, really? I said, yeah, this is what the teacher wants. No, the teacher didn't say this. But this is what the teacher wants. And so my mom was quite confused, and so she calls my brother. And so my brother, my older brother comes in, and so my mom asked my older brother, is, is, do other kids also have these? Is, is your teacher also asking for this? And my brother's like, no, like anybody can, you can just wear regular runners and play soccer. And, and I'm just adamant, no mom, this is what the teacher said. See, I'm lying now to my mom. So we now go to the city, we go to every store looking for these shoes, and we couldn't find them. Adam, this is what the teacher, Wanted, which isn't true. So we couldn't find them, so mom said, well, son, you'll just have to do, uh, make do with what you have until we're able to find these shoes, so now I didn't get my cleats. So I go back to school the next day, we have PE again, and I see this kid, and I'm so jealous, and I begin to scheme, maybe I should steal his, kid. but if I steal them, he will know that I have them, because I'm not gonna be able to showboat with them again, so I'm in school. So that's not a very good idea, now question. Did my mom sit me down or my dad sit me down and begin to teach me how to be manipulative? How to desire and to covet other people's stuff? And how to scheme how I'm going to get them? No, my mom never taught me, my dad never taught me to lie. But somehow or another, I was in school, there I was, and I saw a kid with cleats, and I wanted them. And I began to get envious, and jealous, and began to covet these shoes. And so I began to think to myself, I need me these shoes, so I go home, and I begin to lie to my mom that this is what the teacher says. And Yet that's not what the teacher said. My mom never trained me to do this, so where did I learn it? And all of us have a story growing up. The manipulative ways that you got around to get things that you wanted. Who taught you? Any good parent will not teach their children to lie or to be manipulative. And yet, for somehow, when we are young, or these young ones that we have, somehow they lie and steal and covet and are jealous and gossip and slander and use foul language and even go as far as hating. I hate you, they say. Where do they learn? Where do they learn? See, the point is, we are all sinners. Every single one of us. And when we're young, like the young picture you saw, yeah, cute little Ezzie, yeah, sinner. (laughs) Sinner, just like you as well. We are all sinners. The scriptures will say in Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of sin. And when we talk about sin, it's not just individual sins of stealing and lying and committing murder, no, it's not just that. But there's also sins of attitude, such as lust and coveting and anger and jealousy. All of us, all of us guilty of these kinds of sins. But there is more. There is more. So we are not just guilty of sin, but now these sins, the sin that is in us, there are certain effects that are there. So I'll give you an example. My son, when he was uh, younger, um, he was still in elementary school. So he, was, he showed an interest in soccer. So I was very excited because I played soccer as well as a, as a young man. And so uh, I decided to painfully uh, register him to play soccer, you know, organize soccer. So you play, pay 300 bucks for three months. I'm like, ouch, ouch, honey, we have to pay the 300 bucks for this kid to play soccer. Okay, fine, I'll pay. So I paid my 300 bucks and I take my son to the field where the team is is practicing. And so they're practicing, and practicing the game, practicing the game. And so there I am with other parents in the touchline and I'm watching my son, so I start yelling, run, 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 kick the ball, get to the space, pass, score, score, and there I am. And so they play a game and there I am. One of those parents, yeah, I am. And so I'm telling myself, yeah, kick the ball and run fast and score. And so when my son has a good game, oh man, I am so proud of him. At the end of the game, I run, I give him a big hug, I begin just telling him how awesome he is and everything, and I walk with my arm around him, and all the parents say, yeah, he's my boy, and we get in the car, we go home, and then I tell my wife how awesome and how proud I am of my son. But when he has a bad game, when he has a bad game, the game is over, he didn't score the goal, he wasn't passing the ball, he didn't play well, oh, I begin to ride him. What were you thinking?
1: You had your friend who was
0: open. You had the net open. Why did I score the goal? And so all the way, I'm driving home. I'm now beginning to coach my son, but basically just leaning in a little bit diff, uh, tough on him. So we get home, he's mad and crying, and so we walk in, and my wife looks at my son, looks at me, and we are both angry, and my son is crying, what's the matter? And I tell my wife, yeah, he's not playing well, and my son says, but dad is always just making noise and just stressing me all the time. And there I am, looking at my son. I'm not stressing you, you just have to play, and I'm thinking, I paid 300 bucks, dude, you gotta play. <laughs> You see, my frustration with my son is the presenting problem. My frustration with my son is the presenting problem. See, there's a root issue. What is the root issue? Pride. I want all the parents who are watching this game to know that that's my boy. So it's not about my son and him scoring. It's about me. And every other parent envying who I am. That's my boy. He's the fastest runner. He's the goal scorer. He's awesome. And when my son has a bad game, then I'm not happy. Why? Because my ego was not brushed. My ego was not puffed. I'm now embarrassed because he missed the goal. The team lost because of him. And I want to hide. I'm so embarrassed. It's all about me. See, many of us are the same way. The things we get angry about, that's just the presenting problem. That's just the presenting problem. What's the root issue? Pride. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. Selfish ambition. You name it. It's always, there's always a root issue. And the unfortunate thing here, our sin is so deeply entrenched in us that we don't even recognize it. And sometimes, even if we recognize it, we justify. We kind of say, yeah, I know this might be wrong, but surely it's not going to cause me any harm. I'll give you an example. There's a story of a guy who had a snake. True story, he had a snake as a pet. Now why you'd have a snake as a pet, I don't know. But anyway, so he has this snake as a pet. And so he's feeding it and it's just one of these pythons, these constrictor type of pets. So he's feeding it little mites and everything and so he'd be home in the evening and this thing is just slithering around and it comes on the couch on him and everything. He carries it in the kitchen, puts it around the, the, his neck and he's selfieing himself with this snake and everything. So a buddy of his, Uh, who lives in a different country, comes to visit, and then comes over, and the guy says, oh yeah, by the way, you should see my snake. And so he sees this snake It's like, dude, this snake is really big. Oh yeah, it's a beautiful snake, look at it, it's nice and neon yellow, it's this beautiful snake. And the guy continues to say how, you know what, sometimes when I go to bed at night, I'm sleeping, and I have this little pouch for it at the foot of my my bed, and the snake sleeps there, but at night, sometimes it just slithers right under the blanket, and we cuddle together with this snake. And the guy's like, he what, yeah the snake comes beside me and just lays beside me and this other individual, the guest, knew a lot about snakes and he was telling this guy dude, you do realize this snake is not coming to cuddle you. This snake is coming to size you up. So it is growing bigger and bigger and every time it comes beside you it is sizing you up to see is it big enough to take you on for you to be dinner? And the guy's like, ah, oh, come on. I mean, this snake, you can't do that, really? And sometimes, you know, this is who we are with sin. We think, oh yeah, but it's not gonna really be bad. Yeah, for other people it'll be bad, but in my case, in my case, it's not that bad, really, until tragedy comes knocking the effects of sin there. This is why Romans chapter three, verse 11 to 12 says, no one is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All, every single one, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Because all have sinned now, there are consequences. Consequences for sin. Now, you saw a picture of my brothers and I. And so we would play a lot. And so, a home with brothers, yeah. My mom survived because we were, we were a handful, I'll say. Or maybe should I say, I was a handful at home. And so, of course, when you have three brothers who are growing up together, they would fight together, but we'd play together. We loved each other, but we're also very competitive with one another, and so it wasn't unusual for every week. Every weekend, there'd be a fight between me and one of my brothers. And so we just had this ruckus, and so, of course, we would have violated a code of conduct in our home. My mom would say, don't fight, be polite, don't take what doesn't belong to you, and so on and so forth, we have house rules. And so one of us, me, would violate this code of conduct. And so after we violate the code of conduct, there'll be an expectation from my brothers. They'll go and tell mom, mom, you know, as he did A, B, C, D. And of course, mom will be like, as he got here. And so there's this expectation from my brothers that now I as he will face consequences of my behavior. It's not going to go well and so mom will say, you just wait until your dad comes, oh my. When dad would show up, it wouldn't be a good evening for this boy. Now, my father loved us. My father loved me. He cared for me, I know this and I experienced the love of my father. But the evening of the, when I had fought my brother on a Saturday, and then my dad comes back home on Saturday evening, I am not seeing my father's love. I am seeing the other side of dad. I am now facing the consequence of my action. In other words, there is no because my father now is confronting me. And when there's no consequence, then my brothers would look and say, okay, then maybe this code of conduct doesn't mean anything. Or maybe mom and dad, they are unjust, why? Because Ezra did A, B, C, and D. So of course, if nothing happens to him, then this code of conduct means nothing. Or mom and dad are being unjust, but when dad would come home and enforce punishment. Yeah. There was no peace. You see, the point here is sin is any failure to conform to God's moral conduct in act, attitude, or nature. Any failure to conform to God's moral conduct. That is sin. God has a standard that he has set, and the reason he sets this standard is because he's creator, and he will say, "This is what will promote human thriving." But many times, you and I, rebellious, born this way, pursuing the wrong things. And so, what happens then to rebels who rebel? And sometimes we rebel, knowing we're, we're I am lying, knowing I am lying, I'm stealing, knowing I am stealing, I am watching stuff I know I ought not to watch, and all the rest of it. And all the, all the rest of it, you and I know this. We do this. We make conscious decisions to disobey. So what happens there? What should happen to us? See Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. What is this death? It's not just alienation from God it is basically seeing the other side of God. Now people would say, okay, so when when God is punishing people at the end of the age, when Christ comes back again, makes all things new, and now he's bringing judgment on rebels, how will God judge? People say, oh, you know what? Hell is a place where you you are removed from God. So God is not there. Hmm, you haven't read your Bible well if that's what you think, because Revelation chapter 14 verse 10, Revelation 14.10 is very clear that Christ will be present as the judgment is being poured on those who are rebellious toward him. So in other words, it's the other side. Now, there's the benevolent, loving, and kind side of Christ, and then there is the other side. This is the side you do not want to see. There's the same way for me when when I'm, I'm home growing up and I'm being a good boy and I see the loving side of my dad where he's giving gifts and all these things. We are talking, we're laughing, it's great until I am in violation of what he wants me to do. Then there's this other side that I don't wanna see. Only that the seriousness of an offense rises with the dignity of the one offended. You see, when you offend my dad, yeah, there'll be consequence, grounding, spanking when I was growing up. But when you offend God, God is way more, that's a way more serious deal. And therefore, his judgment comes. There is no peace. And all of us were there, but. What does the angel say to Joseph? The angel says to Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he, this Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Meaning, yes, there's this judgment that is to come, but God is going to save you from this judgment. He's going to save you from these consequences that are yet to come, this guilt and the effects of sins and the consequences of it. God is going to save you from that. In other words, God is going to bring peace between you and him so that you don't see this other side question, how will he do it? How will he do it? And that brings us to point number two then. How does he save? How does he save? So. How God will save, the answer to that question is the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so we'll see the cause of the atonement. So the cause of the atonement, meaning what compelled God to send Jesus to die? Secondly, the necessity of the the atonement. Was it really necessary for God to send Jesus? And then finally, the extent of this atonement of Jesus here. So the cause, what compelled God now? to send Jesus. No, we've seen, we are all sinners. We are all rebels ever since we are young, myself included. All of us rebels, so the angel then says, yeah, this Jesus will save his people from their sins. How will he do so? Now, the story I'd give us to illustrate how, the cause, the reason why, what compelled God. The story that best illustrates this compulsion is the prodigal son. Jesus tells a parable of the prodigal son. This young man who grew up in his father's house had everything. The dad was giving this young man everything. Gave him all sorts of things. But the young man wanted to live life. And he basically began to shun his father. And he willed, this young man willed that his father would die so that he would get his share of the inheritance. This was taboo, when Jesus is sharing this story, all his hearers, the Jews who are listening to him, they're thinking, oh my goodness, this young man, what in the world is wrong with him? Let me just get at him. This was shameful for this young man to do this, to will that his father would be dead so that he could get his inheritance. And so Jesus continues telling this story, and so this young man Willing, his dad would die so that he would get the dad. Decided, okay, fine, I will give you your share. So the young man takes his share and goes and just spends it on wild living. Gambling and prostitution and drugs, you name it. He did it all. Had all his friends, wild parties, the works, and then the money dries up. He's in a distant country and he's not trying to make ends meet. He doesn't have any food to eat, so he gives himself, he hires himself out to people, and so he begins to feed pigs, and he begins to even eat the pods the pigs are eating, and then he says, man, even the servants in my dad's house eat better than this. Maybe I should go back to my dad, and just plead that dad, let me be your servant. And so he decides, okay, this is what I'm going to do. He packs his bags, whatever he had, and then begins to walk home. Meanwhile, his father, every day, ever since the son left, the dad was always seated at the porch, looking down the road, waiting for this young man to come. Always seated there waiting for this young man to come. Let me ask you this question. If you were the dad, would you do that? Would you do that? When your child calls you, all sorts of swears at you, tells you how much they hate you, wants nothing to do with you, but interested in what you can give them. You will pay the phone bill and pull the gas in the car and pay the tuition and buy the clothes and don't bother me, and they slam the door in your face. They decide they want what is theirs, which is what is yours. And eventually you give it to them and they leave. They don't write. They don't call. They don't respond to any text messages. Nothing. Would you be seated at at the porch waiting and praying and waiting for this child to come back home? This is the story that Jesus gives. The father is seated there. And so the father sees the son coming one day. The the dad sees the son, he looks and looks, and that's my young son. And so back then they wore tunics. And so this old man grabs his tunic and lifts it up. This is taboo. Old man never did this. He lifts his tunic and he begins to run to his son. Something that people in the first century never did. Dads never did, patriarchs never did this. They re- dad runs to this boy, and the boy comes and he falls at his father's feet. Dad, I'm sorry. And the dad lifts him up, removes the ring, and puts his ring in the young man's finger. Welcome home, son. Now, there is so much that we can learn about the father in this story, but one of the things there is that is love. That is love. What compelled the Father to send Christ to die on a cross? Love. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God shows us his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, rebels, busy lying and coveting and stealing and lusting and all this and being jealous and envious and slandering, while we were still sinners, what did Christ do? He died. He died for you and for me. And the best illustration here is Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who would call himself the chief of sinners. What did Paul do? The Apostle Paul was worse than ISIS. He was on a mission to kill every single Christian in the first century. And he thought he's doing God's work and there are people out there who think they're doing God's work by slaughtering Christians. Followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, at the time Saul of Tarsus, was one of them. Until in Acts chapter nine, Christ comes and says, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Why? If you were God, what would you do with Saul of Tarsus? Would you forgive him? This is a guy who's been killing your people murdering them. At the time you met him, he had orders in his hands to go to a city called Damascus to slaughter Christians and drag men into prison. Would you forgive him? Would you? What compelled Christ to forgive this man? Many things. But love was one of them. Love was one of them. So, how does this love play out? So, let's talk about the necessity, the necessity of the atonement of Christ. So, many of you will remember in 2018, around the, uh, um, the spring of 2018 in April, there was a serious accident in Saskatchewan where there's this hockey team, the Humboldt Broncos. They were going on a game. They are going to a game. In the middle of the night, they were driving this bus, and there was this trucker, who ran a stop sign and plowed into this bus, this minor hockey team. 16 young men died. 13 were seriously injured, some with life altering injuries. And so this driver was totally, totally modified. And of course, it was big news across Canada. This driver was an immigrant, since still a permanent resident of Canada, not even a Canadian yet. Permanent resident, now he has killed 16 of our young people who have hockey dreams, and their future looks bright, and they're a good team, and now 16 are dead, and 13 have life-altering injuries. Many of them will not play hockey again. Now what? So of course, this driver of this bus was totally, totally mortified and so the court case happens and he is remorseful and he pleads guilty to all these counts of dangerous driving that have caused bodily harm and death and all these things. He is so remorseful and very sorry and him and his wife they're crying and remorseful of what happened and even the family that had lost loved ones now begin to feel sorry for this man. But what does the judge do? still will have to sentence The judge cannot say, oh dude, I'm so sorry that this happened, I can see you're remorseful, okay, go home, don't do it again. If he did that, oh my. That would not be justice, right? The demands of justice had to be met. So in as much as this man was remorseful, the judge still had to pass the sentence and this man had to be handcuffed and taken to prison. The point here being for this judge to grant clemency to this man, the demands of justice would have to be met, one way or another. The judge cannot just say, okay, I can see your remorseful go away. Go home, don't do it again. No, someone has to pay because the law was, was broken. Now with that in mind, think about it this way, God could have, God could have chosen with perfect justice to leave us us alone, to leave us in our scene awaiting for judgment. God didn't need to send Jesus. We are all rebels, guilty as charged, so God did not need to save you and I, he didn't. He didn't need to save you. In fact, God did not save Jesus wicked angels, as you will see in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that says, God did not spare the angels when they had sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. God didn't save them. And he was right. Just. He could have done that with you and I. But since God in his love decided to save us, The scripture will teach that there's no other way for God to do this than to send his son to die on the cross for us. Someone had to pay. And how do we find this? In Romans chapter three, verse 25 to 26. Paul will use a word there called propitiation. And we'll read the verse in just a second here. But the word propitiation means a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's wrath into favor. I'll read that again propitiation means a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's wrath into favor so the verse will read i'll just start from verse 23 romans 3:23 and following all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption we are justified By his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation the sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin, thereby turning God's wrath into favor. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. How? How? Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What are these former sins he's talking about here? The former sins Paul is talking about here is in the Old Testament, God forgave people so many times. So if God is forgiving people so many times, but who's paying the price for the forgiveness? So you could easily say God is unjust. But was God unjust? No, because God knew Christ is coming. So you'll say, Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, it shows his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just in what way? For God to forgive you, someone has to pay the price. Are you going to pay the price? No. Jesus paid the price. So because Jesus paid the price, you don't have to pay the price. So God is now just because his righteous demands have been met, and he's also the justifier. He's the one now who extends this forgiveness, and all you have to do is say, thank you, Lord, and receive it by faith. And so what is the extent? Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The extent of this atonement, how far does it reach? For God so loved the world that that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Anyone who believes, this is the extent so the invitation is given. God loved the world that he gave. See, this is the joy of Christmas, that God has chosen to love You and me. Even though we have rebelled, we have taken the good things that he created and we've decided we want to party with him wanting nothing to do with him and he continues to love and he continues to wait that we may come back to him. He loves the world that he gave his only son as a propitiation that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life, meaning you'll have peace. You'll not see the other side. So question, Do you know this peace of Christ? Do you know this peace of Christ? See, this is the joy of Christmas because the angel came to say to Joseph, she, Mary, will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Who has his people? The people of Christ are those who will come. May this day not pass you by if you don't know Jesus. Would you know him? Would you know him? Would you come to him? Would you receive this gift that he gives to us? Let's pray. Father, for your grace, we are truly thankful. Thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you that we can celebrate Christmas, not because of all the gifts that our uh, family will buy us, but Lord, because, because of the gift that you give us, your son, that we may have peace and be reconciled with you. Father, for those who are here who do not know your Savior, I pray, dear Lord, would your spirit continue to woo them and invite them in. We commend ourselves now to you. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of Christ. commend ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.